Thank you so much, Sarah Beth. Thank you, praise team. I don't know if you know it or not, but that first song that they sang this morning is actually a song that they wrote and uh, put the music to, and uh, they did a phenomenal job with that song. We want to thank you. <clears throat> That's one you can hear on the radio, I tell you. And if you'd like information about how you can download that, you can see Wesley or any of the band members after this service concerning that. Well, this morning uh, is Veterans well, Veterans Day is on Tuesday, but we're observing it today. And and this morning in our first service, uh, we had two World War II veterans sitting in that service, and we know of another one that's connected to our church uh, who wasn't able to be here today. But are there any World War II veterans in this service? I think you're a pretty young group here. Uh, yeah, I think we're safe on that one. Uh, but I'll, we do have someone who is here today. Listen. We still have charter members uh, who are with us. This church was established in 1949, and about a week and a half, really almost two weeks ago, one of our charter members passed away, and he was the first one deployed out of Putnam uh, to go to battle to the Korean conflict, Uh, Roscoe Patterson. Uh, he was he was that one. He just passed away uh, uh, about two weeks ago. Jerry, his wife, is here with us this morning. Jerry, would you stand up, please? Let's honor her this morning. And Amen. I think so many times we take the sacrifices that these men and women have, have given, we take them for granted so many times. And I'm glad we could take a moment to acknowledge that here today. If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, today, we're continuing the thought, a heroic existence, and today, we're looking at a hero's survival. Now, I'm not a, um, uh, I, I don't know a whole lot about superheroes. Uh, I, I, you know, occasionally, I, I know a little bit about Superman, a little bit about Batman, but as far as the whole Marvel and DC comments and all that, some of you are professionals, I realize. I'm not one of those. So, I had to go and uh, ask my son for this information. And, uh, but here's what I found out when it comes to superheroes. The superheroes in the comics had to overcome something in their lives. Many of them are depicted as survivors. Now, now think about these guys. Spider-Man, if you know anything about him, he had to survive college. I, I wasn't aware of that. I, I've seen a Spider-Man movie, but I didn't realize he was in college. He was trying to survive college. But Hulk, he had to survive radiation poisoning and anger issues. Iron Man and Thor had to survive their pride and ego. Batman had to survive a horrible crime which took his parents when he was a boy. Superman surviving, had to survive the loss of his planet and trying to fit in in an alien world. These superheroes had to overcome. They were survivors. I have no doubt that there are survivors here today. Those of you who have overcome the rejection of a spouse, those of you who have overcome abuse by those that you've trusted, those of you who have overcome bullying and being mistreated, those of you who have overcome the loss of a loved one, and those of you who are, who are overcoming some type of addiction. You see, in this room are many stories of overcoming. In this room, there are many stories of surviving. And for some of you here this morning, you're in the midst of surviving something that you're dealing with. 
And Peter gives us some insight to this. So look at the introduction here. In the passage today, Peter is giving survival instructions to those who make up the church. He is basically instructing us not to be overcome by the dark days and circumstances in which we live, but to stay focused on what we've been called to do. Peter, again, let me remind you, is writing to a church that was suffering intense persecution. He, he was really afraid that this, this church, that those who made up this church were giving up on hope. And, and so he writes this letter. They did not know basically what tomorrow would bring. So in 1 Peter chapter 4, Peter teaches them to live as if Jesus could come back today, as if there is no tomorrow. He tells them three things, and they're right here on your outline. He tells them to live expectantly, to live responsibly, and to live for God's glory. So first of all, if you look there on your outline, he tells them to live expectantly. If you look at chapter 4, 1 Peter, I want you to look at verse 7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things. Now, this verse seems to be referring to Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Here's what that verse says. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord Jesus Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What that is, is there's a picture of something cataclysmic that's gonna happen in the future in which Jesus is gonna come back and the kingdoms of this world will then be turned over to him and his kingdom. Now, all true Christians believe this will happen, but the Bible does not tell us when it will happen. But Peter specifically states that the Lord's return is at hand. Now, since Peter wrote these words almost 2,000 years ago, and obviously Christ does not return, was Peter wrong? Well, of course he wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. Like all the apostles, Peter had heard Jesus tell them that no one could predict the day nor the hour of his return. Yet throughout the New Testament, Jesus' return is consistently said to be at hand. Peter's not the only one that says this. Paul, on several occasions, seems to imply that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, what were they talking about? Well, there's several passages I want you to listen to this morning. Philippians 4 or 5 says this. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. James 5, 8. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Revelation chapter one, verse three, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy, meaning the book of Revelation, and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. Now, the idea behind all of these verses is not that Jesus' coming is immediate, but that it is imminent. That's really what's behind all this. Because, again, Peter is emphasizing that we should live expectantly because though, because though we don't know when Jesus may come back, we should live as if it could be today. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24. He's telling his disciples, Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What was he telling us? To live expectantly. Again, no one knows when, but one day those who believe will discover that his coming was nearer than they realize. So here's the question we can take from this verse. Are you living expectantly? Are you? If, if you knew he was coming back tomorrow, say, would you live any differently? Would you conduct yourself any different? 
Would, you, would, would your focus be on something other than what it's focused on right now? You see, this reminds me of a story I read this week. It wasn't exactly what the boss of a small business expected when he asked his employees to put suggestions in a box as to how the business could be improved. The boss told them, when I come in each morning, I would like to see everyone in his or her place started on the day's work. Anyone, if anyone has any suggestions as to how this could be accomplished, please put it in the suggestion box. Well, the next day, the boss goes, and he pulls out one note that's in the suggestion box, and here's what it said. Wear squeaky shoes. <laughs> what he was talking about is if you are coming and you want to see us at work, let us kind of know beforehand before you get there. Now, what's interesting is that the Bible says that Prior to the Lord's return, there are squeaky shoes. There, is, there are those things that lead us to see that there are signs of his return. And by the way, let me say this. Some of those things are in place right now. Some of those things that you read in scripture. So would you live differently if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? Again, how would you live? Verse seven, If you really, really what it comes down to is all about focus. Peter tells us to live expectantly. And at the same time, living expectantly does not mean living recklessly. You see, so many times people, uh, how many of you have noticed that when uh, uh, a storm is coming or, or, this, or something cataclysmic is coming, have you, how many of you noticed how it seems like people like to party and do all those things? Have, many, have you ever seen that before? Oh yeah, you see that quite often. So basically what Peter is saying, he's saying don't go out there and live recklessly Live expectantly, but not only living expectantly, but live responsibly. You see, the return of Christ ought to make us more faithful in our duties towards God and man. Now, Peter gives us four things that we need to do to live responsibly in the midst of surviving. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take these four things. I want you to think about what you're overcoming right now. What, you're in the survive, what has placed you in that survival mode. What's, what's threatening you right now? He's basically saying, whatever it is, you need to keep these four things in the forefronts of your mind. So first of all, he says, keep persevering. Keep persevering. Here, he apparently is talking about emotionally and mentally. So look at verse seven again. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful. Now, the word serious there implies sound mind and self-control. Now, it also implies the whole idea of not being swept away by emotions. You see, so many times things come into our lives that we don't expect. There are those things that cause us to, if we're gonna survive it, we've gotta overcome. And so here's what happens to many of us. Many of us allow emotions to come in on the scene. And when we respond and we react in ways we shouldn't do that, uh, we shouldn't. So he, what he is saying, he's saying keep a sound mind and be self-controlled no matter what comes into your life. Now turn over, hold your place here, turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. 2 Thessalonians, go to your right a little bit, you'll find it. Now, what he's saying here, as you're turning, listen to this. He's saying this speaks of sanity and discipline. When it comes to persevering, it speaks of sanity and discipline. He's saying don't panic, don't lose your head. Don't be obsessed with what may happen in the future. Keep the right perspective. Keep the faith. Live in truth. Live responsibly. In 2 Thessalonians, 
What you're finding here is a letter that is written to the church at Thessalonica. Now, now the reason it's called 2 Thessalonians implies what? That there was a 1 Thessalonians. See, 1 Thessalonians was written and Paul was writing to another group of people who were being persecuted and basically he was saying the same thing Peter is saying. He's saying, hey, Jesus could come back at any moment or his, his return is intimate. Uh, just you need to live as if he could come back tomorrow. Well, guess what? There's a lot of people in that church took that quite literally. They began to live recklessly. They began to lose self-control and many of them walked away from their jobs. Many of them uh, basically uh, let every, uh, got rid of their things and, and all of a sudden they were just waiting on Jesus to come back. And as a result... They began to live off the Christians who were living responsibly. And so Peter, uh, Paul writes a second letter that, kind of clears, that clears all this up. Look at chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, verse 6. He says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw from every brother who walks disorderly or, or without self-control, and not according to the traditions which he received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. That means they lived with self-control. They lived in sanity. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. We didn't sponge off, off of you. But worked with labor and toil night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. He's saying that we're trying to set an example here. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Now, I, occasionally I'll have people say, can you tell me in the Bible where it says if you don't work, you don't eat? It's right here. You just found it. Okay, And he's instructing them this way. And again, he's, 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 he's talking about their lack of control, no discipline. In verse 11, for we hear that there are some who walk among you, among you who are disorderly in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they, that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. So here's what he's saying. He's saying there's going to be people all around you who are living lives that are not under that are not self-control. They're living lives that are not disciplined. They're out there. They're disorderly in all that they do. He's saying, I want you to continue to do what is right. I want you to continue to live responsibly. He's instructing them in this way. And so he's very clear on this. Now, Look, look at the second word he uses. When he says keep preserving, persevering, excuse me, he's talking about emotionally, mentally, but he also says this, by being watchful, which implies alert and not deceived. Y'all, there is a lot of deception in the world in which we live in today, a lot. So much so that sometimes when I watch the news, not to say that I can't be deceived or anybody else can, Sometimes I watch the news and I'm sitting there thinking, how in the world can people not see this? How many of you have ever looked at the news and thought that to yourself? How do people not see that the direction that we as a country, as a people are going in, it can be very destructive. And so when you look at that, you're, you're saying, and he's saying, listen, be alert. Don't be deceived. Now turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. 
Now, again, he's saying, don't be swayed or deceived by emotions or circumstances. He says this, as a soldier, stay alert, be watchful to the ways of the world and the enemy. You be watchful. Don't be deceived by those things. So then we come to 2 Timothy, which many people believe is the last letter that Paul wrote. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, I want you to look at verse 3. He says, uh, let's see, yeah, verse, verse 2. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to a faithful, to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And so how does he compare our lives? He, he compares our lives as a soldier who is on a battlefield and, and there's all kinds of harm that could potentially come to their life. He's saying, be alert. Don't be deceived by what's going on. Now, look at, turn over one page to chapter three. Look at what he says in verse one. But know this, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, un unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, there it is, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, they appear to be a Christian, but denying its power, but they're really not. And from such, people turn away. So Paul, now think about this. We believe it's the last letter he ever wrote. He's writing to Timothy. Don't you think those last words would carry a lot of weight? They would be very important. And he's saying, don't be deceived. Live under, live under self-control. Don't be deceived. Don't go the way of the world. Be a soldier. Hang in there. Don't grow weary in doing good. Hang in there. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 4. That's the last place we'll go. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, Paul and Peter stress the point to stick to the task God has called you to, even though you may face many distractions. What he's saying here is stay focused, keep per persevering, stay with it. Chuck Swindoll. Many of you like Chuck Swindoll. Listen to what he wrote, wrote in one of his books. He says, when time is short, our focus becomes different. There is something about the brevity of time that introduces urgency, focus, and simplicity to the equation of life. When a friend or family member tells you he or she hasn't long to live, your time together becomes more urgent. Your discussions become less superficial. When a hurricane is blowing in or, or the black tunnel of a tornado looms on the horizon, you don't pull out the Monopoly board game or prepare a gourmet meal. At these times, it's all about survival. And with survival comes urgency, focus, and simplicity. Verse seven, Peter seems to be saying that we need these things in our life. We need to live our lives with urgency, with focus, and with simplicity because Jesus may come back at any time. Now think about that. It was written 2,000 years ago, yet it still applies today. Next, to live responsibly in the midst of surviving, we must also keep praying. Keep praying. Let me say this about prayer. Did you know that prayer focuses you? It does. It, it, it helps you to be focused on what you need to be focused on. Did you know prayer also refocuses you? How, how many of you have ever uh, gone through a day like this? 
you get up that morning, you have your quiet time, you read your, your word, uh, whatever that may be when it comes to whatever book you're reading, and you read your little devotional, maybe that's how it plays out for you. you. You spend time with God in prayer, maybe you journal a little bit, and all of a sudden you get out into your day and you begin your day, and, and you're focused on what is right, what you need to be about, what your day may, and all of a sudden by lunchtime, you're in need of refocusing <laughs> because something happened. Something came into your world, something came into your life, and all of a sudden your attitude wasn't right, and all of a sudden you're losing it. Well, guess what? You know where you have to return to? You got to return to prayer. You got to get refocused. And what Peter is telling these people, he's saying, listen, stay focused. Stay focused on Christ. Look at what he says. But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful where? In your prayers. Stay focused. You see, Peter commands those who are struggling and just surviving to keep on, uh, to, to focus on keeping the lines of communication open with the Lord. Listen, don't let what may or may not happen distract you. God wants to shape your thinking concerning every aspect of your life so you can pray according to his will. Stay focused on him with the end result of bearing much fruit through your life. You, you see, it's funny. When, if you were to ask someone, or Christian, and say, okay, what is the purpose of your life? Hopefully, you would say something like this. The purpose that God has for my life is that I glorify him. One of the greatest ways you can glorify him is through the fruit that you bear with your life. And Jesus said it this way. In John chapter 8, he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. That word abide there, you know, we sit there and we try to make it, oh, if I just hang out with God, if I just read his word. No, that's, abide here is much more than that. Abide literally means to cling, to hang on for dear life. How many of you ever seen those pictures of people, uh, crazy people? I, I've, done, I've done it myself. But anyway, those bungee uh, things in which they, I, get, I guess you get into this thing, there's two people laying there and they got a camera there and they pull you down as far as you can go and then they release you and you go, have you ever noticed that the, there seems to always be one of two people sitting there. There's always somebody just enjoying the ride. There's that other person, what are they doing? They're hanging on for dear life. They are screaming, they're yelling. I mean, oh Lord, I'm calling out to God. I mean, everything. But the thing that they're doing is they're holding on. They're clinging for dear life. That is a picture of what you see here and what Jesus said. It's a picture of it. He said, if you cling to my word, you are truly my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, a lot of times when we think uh, knowing the truth and the truth will set you free, we think, here's the way we normally think. We think it means this. I can be free from the bondages of sin. If I just know the truth, I can be free. That is true. But there's also another way of looking at it. In the midst I'm talking about in the midst of the dire circumstances of your life. You're being mistreated. You're trying to be an overcoming, overcomer. You're trying to survive. That if you will cling to the truth, that truth will set you free even in the midst of your circumstances. It'll set you free. It doesn't mean it's going to take you away from the circumstances, but what's it going to do? It's all about the focus again. It'll keep you where you need to be mentally and emotionally in the process, and of course, spiritually. So, what are we to do next? In the midst of surviving, we need to keep loving. You see, like the rest of the New Testament writers, Peter stresses the priority of love. 
He describes love in these three ways. Look on your outline. First of all, there's sincere love. Look at verse eight. He says, and above all things have fervent love for one another. Now the word fervent here literally means, here's what it means, maximum effort. It literally means to be stretched to capacity. How many of you realize that it's hard to love some people? How many of you, some of you are afraid if you raise your hand, the person beside you might. <laughs> no, 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 it is. But l- let's flip it around. Did you know sometimes it's difficult to love you too? Did you know that? You see, in most marriages, people don't realize that. They think, well, that wife he gave me, God gave me, she is difficult to love sometimes. I mean, that guy's sitting there, he's oblivious to the fact that he's difficult to live with and to love sometimes. But, but the thing is, when you look at it from that perspective, it's talking about an effort. It's talking about maximum effort. We are to love in that way. It's a picture of a runner using every muscle he has as he stretches towards the finish line. Here in this text, the idea is to put all your effort into loving your brothers and sisters. During times of stress, relationships can become strained to the breaking point. You ever been in a relationship with someone and all of a sudden stress from the outside comes in? And you feel like you're just going to snap. You feel like you're going to break. Who do we normally hurt the most in that process? The people closest to us. That's when it happens. I remember years ago, Tina and I were dealing with a very stressful time in our life. And I wasn't sure we were going to survive it. I wasn't worried about what was happening to us. I was worried about what we were going to do to one another. (laughs) Because sometimes you turn on those that you love the most. And this here, again, is a picture of of reaching beyond the circumstance, reaching beyond the the, the fact you might not like the way they're acting or, or dislike the way they're handling their attitude and all that. But you're reaching with maximum effort beyond those things to love like God desires you to love. You see, Peter's readers probably discovered when the pressure of persecution is on that they were tempted to take out their frustrations on one another. Peter is saying, make an extra effort to love as you survive. And y'all, that is a good word for marriages today. It really is. Next, not only do we see a, a sincere love or a fervent love, but you must have as a prerequisite a forgiving love. A forgiving love. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're sitting here saying, yeah, I was doing good till you came to this part. Yeah, I, I know about sincere love, my prayer life. I'm trying to do the right thing. I'm hanging in there. I'm persevering, but why forgiving? Why has that got to be in there? Listen, let me just say this. Before some of you can love people, other people, the way you need to love them, sometimes as a prerequisite, listen, you got to forgive them or you won't have that love that God calls you to have for that person. And so he talks about a forgiving love. Look at what he says in verse eight again. Above all these things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. If you have a love that is stretched beyond capacity, if you have a love making every effort it can, guess what? It can reach past the hurt, the pain, the suffering they may cause into a different whole new reality of forgiving that person. Now, I guarantee you, everyone in this room has been given the privilege to forgive someone before. Guarantee it. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people, a lot of hurt out there. Some of you had to forgive some pretty offensive things done to you. 
And so when you look at this, you got to look at it from the point of view that being a part of any family or church, many times it tests our love. As I said before, sometimes people are not easy to love. Sometimes you're not easy to love. So why is it important that we learn to forgive one another? Listen, the more fervently you love someone, the more opportunity there is for hurt to exist. The more you give yourself to that that person, the, the more vulnerable you become to being hurt. And that's the reason a lot of people have tried that before and they're not willing to go there again. You ever met people who appear to be calloused? You ever ever met people that it's just hard to reach? You don't really know how to reach into their life. They won't let you in. I guarantee you it's because many of them have been hurt and they're not going to let you, they're not going to let another person in. It, It hurt. Too bad. It was too bad. I mean, it was, they were badly hurt in the process. Listen, let me just say this. We're going to let each other down. Did you know that? Before the day ends, I'm not going to go home and try this. Before the day ends, I will probably let my wife down. You want me to bring her back next week to see if that's true? We'll do that. But I guarantee you I will. Before I leave here, I might let some of you down. Before you leave here, you might let me down. We have expectations everywhere we go. And the more we love that person, the more we give effort of our love towards that person, listen, the more expectations we have for things in return. And as a result, many times we open ourselves up to the vulnerability of hurt. But we got to forgive when that happens or we'll never live the life God's called us to live. Listen, to get close to others, to care and serve them, we must learn to forgive. Next, there's, he, he describes selfless love. Listen, you don't cover sins or forgive sin by avoiding people. You cover sins by actively loving them and serving them, which leads to the conversation of hospitality. Look at what he says in verse nine. He says, be hospitable to one another, and then he had to throw this in there, without gr- uh, uh, grumbling. Without grumbling. So here in this text, hospitality not only means providing for a person's needs, it also implies building a relationship. Again, the implication is maximum effort. The Greek word for hospitality comes from two words that mean love and guest. Now, some of you are sitting here today and you're thinking, you know, sometimes it's a lot easier to love guests, to love strangers than it is family. Oh, yeah, I'm in the real world too. I know exactly what you're talking about. But the word hospitality here goes beyond guest. It goes, he says, to one another. It goes to all. And then he says, without grumbling. Let me ask you a question. How many of you before have graciously opened your home or opened up a part of your life to another human being? By the way, that's, that's hospitality. And how many of you, they came in, you were able to minister to them, you maintained the great attitude, and all of a sudden they leave, and, and here's what many of you may have said, I thought they would never leave. That's not living, that's not, uh, listen, that's not being hospitable to one another without grumbling. <laughs> it, it doesn't mean that the end, finally we got through this, they've gone. No, it doesn't speak to that. It talks about maximum effort, reaching beyond yourself. You see, we love in the midst of our surviving to the point that we continue to serve and care for others. But here's what happens. There's always that tendency to turn inward, to turn inward. Next, in the midst of surviving, we gotta keep ministering. Keep ministering. Look at verse 10. 
He says that each one have received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. He's basically saying, here's what he's saying. I want you to see the gift that I've given you. By the way, you've been given gifts to serve others and to bless others. You know that, right? Every Christian has been given those. And he's saying, you need to look at it as a gift, as a grace gift. And not just a grace gift, you got to see it not as a burden. I can't tell you how many times I've seen Christians, especially young Christians, come out of the gate. They've given their heart to the Lord. They just want to serve him. And they find out what their spiritual gift, and they go, and they get in there, and they start serving, and they feel, they feel fulfilled in what they're doing and all that they're doing and serving. And, and then all of a sudden, they start growing weary. And all of a sudden, that gift that was bringing them so much fulfillment when they used it, suddenly becomes a burden. I've seen that over and over again. I've been here 25 years and seen that happen in good people. But he's saying we gotta continue to get our eyes off ourselves. You see, the key to surviving anything that you're trying to overcome is to get your eyes off yourself. And that's what Peter's saying. Get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on the needs of others. Seek to meet their need. Don't, don't get in the fetal position and hide away and, and, and try to, oh, I wish the world wasn't there. So he says to use your gifts. And then the first thing he does, look on your outline. He, he talks about speaking gifts in verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, the oracles of God, this would primarily refer to preaching and teaching, but it also includes any kind of speech which conveys God's truth in which that truth comes from God. And what's interesting, the only authority that a preacher or a teacher has comes from the fact that they were speaking the truth of God's word. Listen, a speaker's own opinions and ideas have no authority. Only God's word can truly change a person. And so if a teacher stands in front of you or a pastor stands in front of you and it's all about their opinions about everything, that's probably not gonna change your life. I know it, I've seen it. It's only when God's word. So he talks about the speaking gifts, but then he talks about the serving gifts. He says, if anyone speaks, let him speak the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. You see, the serving gifts would be anything done with the abilities God provides to encourage and to serve others. It can be playing an instrument or singing, administrating the work of the church, mopping floors, cooking a meal. Anything that you do to serve and encourage others can be service done for God. So Peter is saying, as we wait for the, for the return of Christ, let us keep using what God has given us to help, to encourage, and to bless others. That's what he's telling them. So what is Peter saying? He's saying, you who are being persecuted, you who are suffering, you who are a survivor, you who are attempting to overcome, get your eyes off yourself. Don't, pay, don't be the victim. And get, put your eyes on others. Put your eyes on Christ. Stay focused. Next, we not only live expectantly or live responsibly, but also live for his glory. Look at verse 11, the, the, the middle part. He says that in all things that we may, may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And then he says, amen. The word amen there literally means let it be so. Let it happen. So what is he saying? He's saying, let it happen. Let God be glorified through your life no matter what you're facing, no matter what you're dealing with. The reason why we should long for Jesus' return is not just to get us out of this wicked world or to get us out of that exam or paper that's possibly due tomorrow. Our reason should be to see God glorified. I remember years ago, 
I was a student at Garden Web, and I, I had my family with me. I had a, a, a son and a daughter and a wife, and she worked and I worked and and uh, just trying to. I was. I think at the time I was taking a full load. I was uh, working here full time at the time uh, as a student pastor, and the former pastor asked me to preach on a particular Sunday. Well, I had not. I had not gotten the uh, syllabus or syllabi, whatever you want to call it. I had not gotten that for that semester yet. So all of a sudden, I get that, and then I start looking at the date he asked me to preach that particular Sunday. Back then, it took me a whole week just to put a sermon together, okay, because I was terrified. Didn't know really what to say. So, so I was new at putting sermons together, had to write an exam that was due the day after I had to preach, and ha- uh, now I had an exam and had to write a paper. All that was coming up. On Friday afternoon, I just felt totally overwhelmed. I wasn't going, the survival mode for me back then was to curl, curl up in a ball and go to sleep. <laughs> I mean, literally, I wasn't someone who's willing to be an overcome. I was struggling. I had all this on me, and the only thing I wanted to do is let me sleep somewhere, please. I wanted to escape. But you know something? Once I started refocusing what my life was really all about, that I was here to honor God, to glorify his name, and I was to attempt to let him live through me, all of a sudden I started, I started focusing, refocusing what, I, what my life needed to be on. Did you know when I came out through that, I, w- I, was, I was a survivor, I was an overcomer, at least for that weekend. God blessed that Sunday morning when I preached. I didn't do too bad on the paper. I'm not gonna tell you what I made, but I was satisfied. <laughs> and I nailed that exam. But you know something? I sure didn't want to go there. But we've got to realize, listen, our aim in life should not be for God to exalt us, but we should exalt him. You see, during that time, during that weekend, it dawned on me that Jesus could come back at any time. And looking back on that, man, by Saturday night, I was like, Jesus, come back today. Come back today. Please come back today. Think of the audacity that I had. And don't laugh at me and don't shake your head at me because you've done the same thing. The audacity I had, I was under all this pressure. I was, and, and so I'm asking God to move his whole time schedule of when his return would be to when I needed him to come. Think about the audacity of that. The next greatest moment in human history, I was telling God, this would be a great time. And y'all, we need to realize His return is not about our glory or getting us out of anything. We should look forward and we should live expectantly. We should live responsibly and we should live glorifying his name every day in which we live. The writer of Hebrews ends his letter with this. Now may may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. When it says everlasting covenant, it means it's guaranteed. May you make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is please what is well pleasing in what? His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. That's that's what our life needs to look like. So here's the application. We are to live our lives with the end in sight, realizing that we are not only called to survive, but also serve others that they may come to Christ and join us in eternity. You see, it goes beyond all that. Someone said this. The greatest two things we can do is to glorify God with our lives and to present the gospel to others in such a way that then they have the opportunity to glorify God with their life. 
And now that's what life's all about. So, so here's what we need to leave with this morning. Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven right before the eyes of his faithful followers. He then made a promise with Peter standing right there. He said, I will return. One day, all of us who long for his return will hear the voice of freedom shout from heaven and he will touch down again on planet earth and he will announce to the world, I have returned. Until that day, no matter what we may face, we are to live expectantly, we are to live responsibly and we are to live for his glory. Let me ask you, is that how you woke up this morning? Saying, man, I I just need to live like he'd come back today. I need to live responsibly. And there's four ways I can do that. I, praying and ministering, loving. And, and you know what tops it all? My, my life today needs to glorify him in whatever I do. Did you wake up with that in mind this morning? I guess a better question would be, are you willing to wake up tomorrow with that on your mind and on your heart? That's the way Peter told that congregation who were going through very difficult times That's how he's told them to live their lives. And I think it's good enough for us too. Would you stand to your feet, please? Father, we just come to you right now. We thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge this morning. Father, I have no doubt that in a room this size that there's probably some here today that doesn't know you as as their Lord and Savior. And Father, I just pray that you'll just, maybe through all this you've been working in their hearts, that your Holy Spirit's been revealing uh, himself uh, about you to to them. And and Father, I just pray that you'll just work in their life. Father, if there's a Christian that's here today, maybe they're holding on to hurt, they're holding on to unforgiveness. Lord, help them to release that. Help them to realize the life that you've called them to and what you desire, that you desire so much more for them to to be bound up. Father, I just pray for, if there's someone here today that believes it's the church home you called them to be a part of, I pray today will be the day that they'll follow with you and and be obedient to what you've called them to. We thank you for what you're going to do. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Getting ready to sing a hymn of invitation. If you don't know him, we invite you to come today. Gary and myself will be here at the front. If you're a Christian, maybe you just need to get around the altar, just leave something there with him. Maybe you need a pastor to pray with you. Just do what he's calling you to do in these moments. Would you sing with us?